this man comes up to me and he starts talking to me about his community, how they are like God-centered and they had a very hippie kind of a look to them and they talked about God. And I was like, all right, that's it. I'm not finding my happiness there in California. I'm going to go join this community. It turned out it was a Christian cult. there. I'm Tanya, and you're listening to Human and Holy, a podcast where we discuss the deepest parts of Torah, not just as scholars, but also as human beings. If you are listening to this and would like to sponsor an episode of the podcast or support Human and Holy in any way, visit humanandholy.com slash sponsor or email us at info at humanandholy.com If you want to see that in writing, the link will be in the show notes. In today's episode, we hear from Sarah Korn, who is a co-director at the Bowery Chabad House in Manhattan, and a woman with a remarkable personal story about a sicha of the Rebbe that talks about how a Jew's life is built on miracles. What does it mean to pay attention to the miracles God is already doing for us? What does it mean to make space for the miraculous in our lives? And perhaps most practically, how can we avoid that sneaky cynicism that attempts to derail us from seeing God's hand? I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for being here. It's my honor. The idea that we're going to be discussing today is something that I feel excited to be infused with. So thank you. Me too. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Aren't we all? (laughs) Can you start just by introducing yourself? Tell us your name. Tell us what you do and tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So my name is Sarah Korn and my husband and I run Chabad House Bowery, which is a Chabad house in downtown Manhattan for students and young professionals. And... A little bit about myself. What do you want to know? <laughs> what are you into? What are you passionate about? What's your thing? Uh, okay. Yeah. So I'm very passionate about Nyani Golem Mashiach. And I'm very passionate about teaching kalas. I'm a kala teacher. I think that my main passion is education, really. And that's my main role in my Chabad house, besides being in charge of the finances, which leads into our topic for today, because to be in charge of finances for a Chabad house in Manhattan, you need a lot of betachin. <laughs> you rely on Hashem for a lot of miracles. <laughs> exactly. So today we're going to talk about how a Jewish life is created and built through miracles. Before we get into your personal experience with this really powerful idea, can you just tell us where in Hasidus you've learned about this idea that a Jew's life is created through miracles? Yeah, so it's my favorite sicha, if I could say that, because I love everything the Rebbe says. But there's a beautiful sicha from Parshas B'Shalach in the year Nun Aleph, where the Rebbe speaks about miracles, and he says very clearly in that sicha that every Jew's life is crafted through miracles, and if they don't see it, it's because their eyes are closed. And I was like, wow, I love that. So basically, the Rebbe starts off by talking about Kriyas Yamsuf and how the Yidin sang this song as they were going through the sea. And the Rebbe asks the question, why is it that the Egyptians are even mentioned in this song, right? It's like this beautiful, open, amazing, probably one of the biggest miracles Hashem ever made for the Jewish people. And we're celebrating our reunion with Hashem as we're on our way to Matan Torah. Like, what are we even talking about the mitzvah for? Like, why do they belong there? So the rabbi explains that really, like, the ultimate purpose of the miracles that Hashem makes for the Jewish people is really that it should be reflected in the world around us. And that when it really, really 
the truest manifestation of the miracles that Hashem makes for us comes in, what does it say in the Geula? That not only are the non-Jews going to leave us free to keep Torah and mitzvahs, which we see is already happening, which is one of the ways we see we're already in Yemos HaMashiach. No one's really holding us back anymore from keeping Torah and mitzvahs. So we're definitely in the beginning stages of that. But that they assist us. The Rambam actually says that when we gain the three lands in Eretz Yisrael, it's going to be because the non-Jews willingly give it to us. So the non-Jews are like the ultimate manifestation of that we've completed the Deir B'thachtonim when they are assisting us and helping us. So another thing that the Rebbe says in that brings out is why is Amalek mentioned in this parsha, right? Where it's talking about Kriyas Yamsuf and the ultimate Deir B'thachtonim of the non-Jews helping us in our Torah mitzvahs. What's Amalek? So Amalek is the voice that comes along and says, ah, did Hashem really make a miracle for you? Like, maybe we could explain this naturally. Maybe we could mm. find some sort of way to explain this. So Amalek is, is what comes along and sort of cools off our realization that Hashem has sovereignty in our life. So really, our Aveda is to ignore our own inner Amalek by acknowledging Hashem's sovereignty in our life. And the Rebbe says there, quotes Mishlei, that the world is actually in our heart. And so when we acknowledge Hashem's sovereignty in our life, that Hashem is present, making miracles for us, helping us in our life, making things work out in a very practical sense in all the details of our lives, that actually then causes the world to respond. That causes the non-Jews to realize it too. So I think that's also so empowering because the Rebbe told us, like, do all you can to bring the Geula. And it can feel very daunting when you look at the world around you. But when you realize that just you acknowledging Hashem's sovereignty in your life, the whole world is contained in your heart, that you can cause the Geula. And that's how we could understand this, that the Rambam says that one deed could tip the scales. Like, it really is in each of our hands. And you don't know which moment where you're really acknowledging Hashem's sovereignty will it cause the whole world to turn around. And nowadays, we can also see how that could really happen naturally, just with, like, influencers and the way, like, one idea gets out there and, like, the whole world shifts in a moment and everybody's talking about it. So we can even understand how the Gula could happen in a very practical way almost, I want to say, yeah. even though it seems not, but it, it really is. Yeah. It's in our reach. I love how you said that it can be easy to justify a miracle and find natural means that it might've happened through, but the distinction is only how we recognize it. And if in our own hearts, we recognize Hashem made this happen and this is not just, and I don't even want to say not just nature because nature in and of itself is God's miracle. A hundred percent. I'm actually learning a mimer right now on this. And Kimitzitz Chama Eretz Mitzrayim around in a flow. So there's a lot of mimerim of the Rebbe the Rebbe on this particular pasuk. And the Rebbe is actually speaking about exactly what you're saying. Like, what is actually the difference between Nes and Teva? What's the difference between nature and miracle? So the truth is, there is a difference, and I only can explain this right now because I'm literally learning about oh, okay. this right now. So. Like you said, nature is miraculous. Hashem is completely enlivening nature at every moment. It would cease to exist if Hashem wasn't enlivening it. So what's the difference between that and a miracle? So the Rebbe explains that miracles remind us of Hashem's sovereignty in the world, mm. right? But if you meditate on nature, you could realize Hashem has sovereignty over the world too, right? So it's back to the, your, what you just said. So the Rebbe says something fascinating, though. He says that even though nature is absolutely governed by Hashem and that is totally miraculous and being enlivened by Hashem at every moment. But yet when you meditate on nature, first of all, you have to meditate on it to realize this. Even when you're meditating on nature, you're still interacting with nature, recognizing that Hashem is behind the scenes. Whereas a miracle, whether it's a miracle that transcends nature, breaks nature like Chris Yamsuf, or a miracle like Hanukkah or Purim, which actually comes into like the details of the physical world and manifests through the physical world, it's a revelation of God. So you're actually seeing God's revelation with a miracle, whereas when you're looking at Teva, you're looking at nature and recognizing that Hashem is behind mm, it. So it's okay. a little bit different, and they come yeah. from different sources spiritually. Okay. I actually like how you express that. And that's cool that you are in the middle of learning something that differentiates it. One is yeah. us reminding ourselves and one is God reminding us. Exactly. Exactly. And yet still when Hashem reminds us, it still requires our Vaida to recognize it, but it is still a little bit of a different manifestation. Yes. 
Right. Okay. So there we have to accept the call. Like God is like, I'm creating a miracle. And then we could start rationalizing and saying like, no, I could see how this happened naturally. And it's like, no, that was a miracle. (laughs) (laughs) Wake up. (laughs) It's a miracle. Exactly. Exactly. And a Hanukkah from Nunbeis, the Rebbe says, we really need to publicize the miracles, acknowledge them. So that's even a different Sicha, but it's really an Avoda. And it's, I think, a very exciting and fun one, to be honest. It's my favorite. (laughs) So then by this definition of miracle, what does it mean that a Jew's life is built on miracles? It's a great question. I actually thought about that too. So, I mean, nature has a certain way Hashem created it, right? So he created it in a way that has a certain constancy to it. There's certain laws of nature that Hashem made and that Hashem continues to enliven and keep going. But a miracle is when Hashem, I mean, again, I'm not an expert at Hasidus, but the way I understand it based on my understanding now is that Hashem Havaya, or like the transcendent part of God, sort of hides behind that, okay? So when the Rebbe is saying that a Jew's life is crafted by miracles, it means that a Jew is constantly experiencing open revelation of Hashem, not just Hashem as he's concealed in nature, but Hashem saying, hi, I'm literally right here. I'm not hiding from you. I'm here. I'm interacting with you. Like, Mm. All the time, all the time. And if you were just left to the way I created the world, that your life should go according to the natural rules, it would look different than it does. So acknowledge that. I'm constantly breaking my own rules for you. I'm constantly breaking through and saying hi to you in all the different areas of your life. All I'm asking from you is to acknowledge and recognize that. That's how I understand it. Mm, Okay. Oof. So tell us, how have you experienced (laughs) this? Okay. Yeah. In a lot of ways. So first of all, I'm kind of typing. It's funny because I'm very into transcendence, but I'm also very practical. So I really, I broke it down that I feel like these miracles manifest in all different ways. So sometimes it's chizuk or encouragement in the moment, or sometimes it's chizuk that you're going to need in the future. And you can look back on the miracle and be like, oh, Hashem already gave me the answer to this thing that I'm struggling with. Mm. Sometimes you act as an agent or a messenger for someone else and the miracle for someone else comes through you and you get to see that and you're like, wow, I think that is the best. And it says in Hayomium that every Jew should sensitize themselves to feeling so good about being able to do a kindness for another, how much more so when you are a vehicle for Hashem's kindness to come to someone else. So I'll start with the story of our Chabad house. So it's actually really, really amazing. We went out on Shluchus in 2002 to Manhattan. And anyone who lives in Brooklyn or is close to Manhattan understands if it's expensive to live in Brooklyn, just take times that by about times four. That's how what it costs to live in Manhattan. And so buying a building in Manhattan is very, very expensive. And, you know, when we first came out on Shluchus, I think we were sort of, we have to buy a building after a building. We finally realized, no. We need to just focus on the people who need our light and love, and the building will come in the right time. So by the time 2008 rolled around, so that was already six years in Tarshlichus, we were bursting out of the seams. We were in this tiny little basement that was somehow affordable because it was like a basement. A basement. <laughs> uh, yeah, basically. And it was like it functioned as an event space, an office, a shul. It was like this tiny little 900 wow. square foot space. And we had like 200 plus kids coming to us for Shabbos. Oh, my God. Bursting out of the scene. And my husband knew we needed a building, but it was like we were already struggling to make ends meet. So we like, how are we buying a multi-million dollar building in Manhattan? And the other issue is that what we needed actually didn't really exist in our neighborhood. Because what we needed was like a big loft kind of open space where we could have big Shabbos meals. What are we going to do with the townhouse, which is mainly our neighborhood? Yeah. So we kind of like just like put it out of our minds. But my husband had this pusik hanging over his little desk that was literally inside a closet. Okay. His desk was not a closet, like a walk-in closet, like a closet closet. Like he couldn't close the door when he was sitting in it. <laughs> so he had this pusik above his desk that said that salvation of Hashem comes in the blink of an eye. Mm. So anyway, someone finally calls us. I was like, hello, like you got to get out of the basement. Muslim's mashpia. He was like, it's a good time to buy. We're in the recession. Muslim was like, okay, great. Like I'm happy there are people who want to help us, but still like there's nothing in our neighborhood. Anyway, so he was walking on Shabbos. And I always think about when you learn about the miracles of the Gula also, the Rebbe says that the way the miracles are going to be in the Gula is that they're going to manifest through Teva. Like the world itself is going to start to bridge with miracle. 
And I really feel we experienced this with our Chabad house because nothing in our neighborhood existed. And then all of a sudden, my husband was walking down the block with one of our students who was in real estate, and he saw these two commercial loft spaces literally around the block from where wow. we were living. It was like it literally just came out of the Shemayim. And it was like literally exactly what we needed. So there was a lot of miracles in raising the money for it. There were a few donors who were very forthcoming, which I've been in fundraising for a very long time now, being able to get the kind of money that we were able to get. And the amount of time we got it was in and of itself a big miracle. And then there were other miracles along the way. We were about a million dollars short, like a week before closing, and we were going to lose our deposit. And we had no idea where it was going to come. And out of the blue, someone offered to lend us a million dollars, which my husband was like looking at loan sharks. Anyway, so we got the building and there are two amazing like kind of winks from Hashem. Number one is after we built it up, we were like, okay, when are we going to do our opening? It's because it was a raw space. We had to build the whole thing out from scratch. So we chose a date that we thought would be really good for our donors that, you know, they would be able to come. And I had no idea until the week of the opening that we picked Parshish Truma, okay? But it gets even crazier. So it was Parshish Truma, the building of the Meshkan, right? So we had in our Chabad house these exposed beams. It was part of the design. My husband told the designer, we want to have like warm Jewish feeling to the Chabad house, but we also want it to be reflective of like the hip kind of neighborhood that we're in, human and holy, right? But we want to bridge it. So the designer said, you have to have exposed beams. It's very Manhattan, very Soho. So we're like, okay. But the problem is because of after 9-11, there's like major red tape you have to get through to get the beams approved by the fire department so you could paint them. So we had to put this like ugly white paint all over these beams that are everywhere in the Chabadas. They were like a major part of the design. So our donors and all these people are coming to celebrate the opening and we have these ugly exposed beams and the fire department kept not approving that we should. It seems like a little thing, but it was like, if there had been this ugly exposed beams, it wouldn't have been the end of the world, but it was just not great. And the day before the opening of our building, Parshish Trim, if you open up the chitz of that, of that day, it says Vasisa Karashim, which is talking about the beams in the Mishkan. We got approved that day. Mm. The next day, which was the night of the opening, the parochis, which one of the main donors of our Chabad house donated the parochis in memory of his mother. And so we really wanted them to be there. They were beautiful. We ordered them like months before. For some reason, they were taking an enormously long time to come. That morning, it was the Asisa parochis in the Chumash, and the parochis arrived that morning. Mm. So to me, Hashem was telling us loud and clear, you're building a Mishkan. And... I didn't even know if at that time I needed to hear it. <laughs> but what I mean about sometimes things happen and then in the future you look back and you're like, mm. okay, like Hashem gave me clear messages because once we actually opened our Chabad house and we were no longer functioning out of this tiny little basement, our budget quadrupled. I'm sure. Like we didn't think about that. You know, you don't think about it. You know? <laughs> and sometimes it's really hard and I'll like question like, were we crazy? Like, should we have done this? What were we thinking? And then I think back and I'm like, no, no, Hashem gave us like a very clear sign. Like it's very open. Another thing that's really Mm. amazing is that my husband and I have a very, very strong connection with Simcha. Not because it's easy for us. (laughs) Because we both struggle with like, you know, getting like caught in our heads and overthoughtful and we could get a little down. And the Rebbe has many, many ways of, of reminding both of us that our vote is simcha, your vote is simcha, your vote is simcha. So my husband was always a little sad that the address to our chabados didn't have, it wasn't like, I don't know, 770, 1836, whatever. <laughs> we, we love numbers, you know. One day, a student of ours who, like, whatever my husband and I for bring, we always talk about simcha and the importance of simcha and a vote of Hashem. The student runs in and she goes, Rabbi, you won't believe it. Did you ever calculate the gematria of simcha? It's 353, mm. which is the address of our Chavadas is 353. So it's like little things like that that we can't take for granted. Those are deep, deep messages from heaven encouraging us and making us realize like, oh, you're on the right path. This is yeah. what I need you to do. Oh, I love everything that you're sharing because I think that what you're shedding light on is just opening up our eyes to the miracles that are happening around us. Like even when you mentioned that that day it was talking about the Parochus and the Chumash and that's the day that your Parochus came. I'm thinking like you had to have been aware. You had to have been paying attention. You had to have been open to that 
hug, God wink. Exactly. And then to be able to celebrate it and to pay attention to it so that you could then look back at it later when you're feeling discouraged and say, no, God was showing us that he supports what we're doing, that we're building a Mishkan, that we're building a home for him and that he's going to send us miracles. So it's really about our own awareness and our own openness. And I think it requires not being cynical because it's so easy to get cynical and just say like, okay, nice. Like it's cute, but like, that's not a God message. That's not Hashem sending me a hug saying hi. Yeah. And the truth is it does. And that's why when I saw it in the Sikha, I was like, no, no, I'm actually not crazy that I get excited about these things because the Rebbe is saying we should like that, that, that is yeah. the on it. Because I think that, like you said, there is cynicism and there is that sort of Amalek that comes along and says, oh, come on, don't get so excited. <laughs> Give me a break. <laughs> you know, and it's like, no, no, we, we really should, because that's really where the Simcha comes from, is knowing that Hashem is with yeah. you all, all the time. And Hashem is good. Yeah. And therefore, there's nothing but to be joyful about. That's mm-hmm. why the older Hasidim were called defreelickers. Rabbi Majeski opens up his book on the Hasidic approach to joy, saying, why were the Baal Shem Tov's Hasidim called the happy ones? Because they knew that Hashem was with mm-hmm. them all the time. Yeah. And just thinking that the cynicism is not, it's not about listening to other people's stories and believing that God was talking to them or that someone else has a direct channel to the divine that you don't have. It's about not being cynical in your own life. It's in your own life that you have to open your eyes. Because yes. like you said, it's in your own heart that you have to be aware yes. of Hashem's presence with you. A hundred percent, which is why as I've gotten older and like a little more confident, I'm not saying I don't have my major moments of self-doubt, but I used to have a hard time sharing these stories because it wasn't really actually until I saw the Sikha that really gave me the impetus, like, no, Sarah, you have to get out there and share this message because the Rebbe is telling you that this is a message people need to hear. Because I used to feel like I was a little crazy because I see Ashkacha Pratis all the time and I'm always noticing all these little miracles. And I always felt like, Maybe I'm just like weird. <laughs> and I saw yeah. this and I'm like, no, I'm not. This is a message people need to hear and it's really important. And it's and right, and the point of me sharing my stories is not so that you could say, oh, Sarah Korn, you know, you see Hashem everywhere. No, I'm sharing my story so that you can recognize that the Rebbe is saying yeah. this, this is in your life too. You can see it too yeah. in your life. Exactly like you said. Yeah. And when people are open about their experiences of that, it helps us be a little less cynical for ourselves, at least for me. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I'm sharing. I'll tell you two really amazing stories about being a messenger for someone else because I think that's really powerful. So this story is actually a really big open miracle. It's really crazy. I still think about it. I'm like, I cannot believe that happened. Basically, there's a woman who lives in our neighborhood from the Soviet Union. We first met her when we first came on Shluchas, you know, over 20 years ago. She used to tell us stories about the Chabad Hasidim who would come and for bring with them in the underground life that anyone who was, I guess, what they would call a refusenik living in Russia, those who refused to cave to the Russian government, there was a whole underground movement of Jewish refuseniks that were basically being kept uplifted and inspired by Chabadnikim there. And so this woman would join these underground Fabringans where they, the Chabad people would come and give them chizuk. She said an altar matzker was one of the shluchim who would come and visit her. And she would just tell us these stories. And it was really, really amazing. So. Anyway, over the years, when she came over to America, she got a dollar from the Rebbe, and, she, and he, he gave her some chizuk. And so she's like a very special soul that we always just felt like, wow, like when we learn about what they went through, like here she is, you know, like in our life, like telling us all about it. And, and we love her. Anyway, I haven't seen her in years, a long time. She still lives in Manhattan. She's now modern Orthodox. She used to have underground Tanya Shuram in her, in her house. Like she had real mysterious message. She came to America and her and her daughter live in Manhattan. She's involved with a different Chabad house now. She lives not too far from me, but I haven't seen her. Anyway, run into her. And you know, anyone who knows me, I'm pretty subtle. Like I like to just kind of really be with a person where they're at and get to know them. I'm not like a type of person who's like very like in your face about things. And I do not know what made me say this to her, but I guess because I just associate her with like those times of just like holding on tight and the Rebbe, like basically just keeping them inspired. And I just look at her and I said to her, you know, the Rebbe is looking out for you. And I was like, literally hadn't seen her in 10 years and I'm walking past her on the street. (laughs) So like, not me. And she looks at me and she goes, I know, I know it's so, it's true. And she said something about how recently she went to the Aya. 
Anyway, I'm like, okay, I don't know what came over me, but I guess she needed to hear that. So we exchanged nice hellos and goodbyes. And as I'm trying to walk away from her, my stroller gets stuck in a ditch. Ugh. Literally, I could not move it. It was like embarrassing, you know? I'm like, okay, we had a nice moment. <laughs> it's time to move I on. Not, I could not move my stroller. Like, it just wouldn't budge. So I look at her and I'm like, huh, well, Shem doesn't want me to leave right now. So I think I'm supposed to take your number. And I didn't think that that would be necessary because, you know, she has a connection with the Chabad near where she lives. She doesn't really live near me. I'm really more involved with students and young professionals. So on a practical level, it was like, I don't know what I'm going to call her, what it would be about. But I'm like, I don't know. Shama obviously wants us to be in touch. So then I'm thinking that maybe she'll join my Nyane Gola Mashiach WhatsApp group. I don't know. I don't know why Shama wanted me to stay in touch with her. So I invited her to my WhatsApp group, but she didn't join us. So I'm like, okay. I kind of just put it in the back of my mind. Anyway, my son-in-law works for Jem. And sometimes he'll send me the gem video. A few weeks later, he sends me a gem video. And it's this beautiful video about Rabbi Levy, who used to do business all over the world. I don't know the exact reason why, but Russia used to let him in. And he would let him in with a video camera. And he would go to these underground for bring-ins and take videos. And one of the things that he would do when they would let him in with this video camera, which in and of itself is just so unlike the Russian government at that time, but for whatever reason they did, people would take videos of themselves asking the Rebbe for a bracha. And then he would bring these videos back to New York to the Rebbe, and the Rebbe would get to see the mysterious wow. nefesh of all these Jews sitting there for bringing, saying their Hebrew name and asking the Rebbe to bless them. So I happen to have like a, I don't know what it is. I have this thing where I could see a picture of someone in a, I know them when they're 40. I could see a picture of them when they're five and I will recognize their face. Maybe a lot of people are good at that. No, I don't think so. But like for some reason, like I'm very good at seeing That's a face. That's really like cool. I know a face. That's yeah, so cool. It's, it's, I don't know why because I don't really use it that frequently. Maybe it was just for this story. Anyway, so he's going around and all of a sudden there's this woman and she says, my name is Miriam Baschana. And then there's this little girl Peril bus, Miriam. And I'm looking at them and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's her. And I take a screenshot. I'm like, Marina, oh, wow. I can't believe. So I take a screenshot of it and I send it to her. And she was like, that's why your stroller went into the ditch. Now we know why. And I ended up putting her in touch with Jam, and they're probably going to do an interview with her. But to me, mm. it was like the Rebbe obviously wanted her to know, I am looking out for you. And not only did the Rebbe Shlucha walking past her in Manhattan need to tell her, the Rebbe reminded her that she asked him for a bracha to look out for her, and he's still looking out for her. Wow. And it was like, even if she never gets a Jam interview, I realized like that was a clear open communication from the heavens that came through me to this one. It was Mm. Not wild. Wow. And oh, a stroller falls into the ditch. You get her number. <laughs> you're like, why am I telling her the Rev is looking out for her? And then just this full circle moment where you're like, I am here to remind you that the Rev is looking out for you and that he loves you and he cares for you. Yes. Yeah. So that was one like really wild open miracle that came through me that I'm still just like, wow. So there was another one. This is actually something that Torah tells us happens, you know, that when a person is naming a baby, they get a moment of Ruch Kaidash, right? Mm. So my brother passed away in 2020. And while my daughter, my oldest daughter, was pregnant with her second child. Wow. Yeah. And yeah, it was a very, obviously, very intense time for my family. My brother was 38. Uh, he's young. Wow. He died tragically. He oh. did not have any children of his own or a wife. And it's very sad. But, you know, I have my whole own journey with that. And, you know, I really feel like he's with us in, in a lot of ways. And we'll see him, please God, with the false goddess of the Gula and Chisamisim. May it be immediately today. Amen. So when my daughter, my daughter told me, like, if I have a son, I want to find a way to name him after Matthew, my brother, whose Hebrew name was Yitzchak Mordechai. So obviously we were thinking, how could we do it? Because, you know, he died young. Maybe they'll add a name. I, I got it in my head. I don't know why, that as long as you add a name, it's fine. So they were going to name him something like Chaim Yitzchak Mordechai. And that was the only one who knew. I was with her and her husband when, when she gave birth. She did have a beautiful, healthy baby boy. And only the three of us 
I didn't even tell my husband because, you know, it's like something that, you know, you don't say anything until the, the name actually happens. So that's what she was going to name it. And they were so confident that that was going to be his name. They actually asked the Rav if it's okay if they put it on the birth certificate in the hospital because anyone who's ever had a boy knows. I mean, I actually don't have boys. I only have daughters. But I have friends who, you know, have their 16-year-old sons going to get licenses and their birth certificate says B.B. Keeveman, you know? <laughs> Like, my legal name is Baby, (laughs) because it's such an annoying thing to have to go back and change the birth certificate. A lot of Jewish mamas who are busy never bother to do it. So they literally put Yitzchak Mordechai on his birth certificate. They were so confident. And they didn't know, like, what the third name would be. But anyway, so it was a Shabbos breast. And my husband's very good friend, Simcha Levenberg, flew in from... California to come to the bris because we don't have any sons. We have eight daughters, Baruch Hashem. So this was like our first male descendant of a granddaughter, but my first son, really, my yeah. grandson. So it was like a big deal. My husband's best friend flies in. And, you know, my whole family is at this beautiful Shabbos meal, Shabbos night, the night before the bris. And I say to my husband, friend, simply, you know, why don't you say a Devar Torah? So he decides that he's going to say a story. And he starts talking about the night before the bris of his oldest son. And he says he was planning on naming his son Velvel Ephraim after his father who'd passed away. Simcha lost his father at age four. So his father was also in his 30s when he passed away. Mm. And he was planning the night before the bris. It's like two in the morning. His son was born on Sukkot or right before Sukkot. So the bris was going to be right on Cholomite Sukkot. And he's reading because he's staying up the night before the bris. It's a, you know, it's a custom to stay up the whole night. And he's reading a book about names. And it says in this book that you're not supposed to name a child after someone who died young tragically. And as he's telling the story, I'm freaking out. My mother's freaking out. We're like all hysterical crying. It was like, <laughs> and Simcha's like watching this whole thing sort of swirl around him as he's telling the story. So he's saying how he didn't know what to do, but he was living in Crown Heights at the time. And he went out to Simcha's base of Shueva to see if he could find a Rav who's out there, Rav Marlow, Alava Shalom, dancing at three in the morning, you know, oh singing the Gunam on Simcha's base of Shueva. How beautiful is that? And he goes over to him and he says to him, I don't know what to do. I was going to name my oldest, my, the Brisses tomorrow morning at like 8 a.m. I was planning on naming him Velvel Ephraim after my father. I saw this thing in this book and he looks at him and says, you'll name him Ephraim ben Benasha from Chumash, not after your father, just Ephraim. So all of a sudden, my daughter and her husband <laughs> start whispering. I'm, freak, I'm freaking out. And Simcha's sitting there going, oh no, what did I do? Like he saw like mayhem, like. So in the end, he ended up being named Baruch Mordechai. So Mordechai, obviously reminiscent of my brother, but after Mordechai had Sadik. Mm. And Baruch, after Yisrolik, my daughter's husband, his grandfather had just passed away a couple of months before, and his name was Baruch, and he lived to a long, healthy old age of like 90-something, Baruch wow. Kiefman. And I mean, I couldn't believe it. And even though I was shooken up and I read, you know, the implications of the fact that my brother can't have a namesake. It was hard for me, but I was just like, that was such a clear, open, divine communication. Like, and Simcha felt so bad. I'm like, why do you feel bad? Like the Shekhinah spoke through your lips. Like, are you kidding me? Like, that was amazing. <laughs> you know, like after I had time to digest it, I was just like, that was amazing. And he's born Chai Adar. And his name is Baruch Mordechai, which is the whole theme of Purim and Adar. Like, obviously, that was the name he was meant to have. Yeah. And he's the cutest, yummiest kid. He's just turned a year old because we just passed Chayadar. And he has this dimple in the middle of his chin, which is unbelievable. And he looks exactly like his great-grandfather, Baruch. Wow. So, clearly. It was meant to be. Yeah. <laughs> what inspired him to say the story? He doesn't even know. It was the night before a bris, and it was his okay. oldest son. And I guess in his mind... Oh, it was the night before the bris. Okay. It was Friday night. It was the night before his oldest son's bris, and this Shabbos meal was the night before the bris, which was Shabbos morning. Okay. That's sweet. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so that <laughs> one is like, everyone's, everyone's like, we need to reconsider. <laughs> yes. The whole place went in. And then my daughter's husband, his, his father flew in from England for the breast. He's like, whoever told you that you could add a name anyway? I was like, yeah. oh, no, I don't know where that came from. I thought <laughs> it was fine. <laughs> right. I mean, 
why wouldn't it be fine? But okay, listen, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So you've been mentioning just like how there's so many different ways that we can experience miracles in our life. A Jew's life is built on miracles. And so far we spoke about how Hashem can show you a miracle that in the moment bolsters you and then also become something that you can look back at to gain comfort when you're struggling and how yes. we can be messengers for other people, like literally be channels for God to communicate with other people and vice versa, how we can pay attention to how other people sharing things. I mean, Hashkacha Pratis can be miraculous if we are eyes open to it and really receiving yes. what it has to tell us. Yes. Beautiful. I know both of your daughters and your daughter told me that you just have the most incredible story of how you found Yiddishkeit and how miraculous that experience was. So can you tell us about that story? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a long story, so I won't obviously go into all the details, but in short, at around age 16, I really started to recognize that there was something beneath the surface, which is amazing for me to think about because up until age 16, and I don't even like, you know, there are plenty of things in my life that I still have plenty of chuva and, and transformation to work on. But then there are certain places where you see that there's a real transformation because the Rebbe actually says that you know that you've done chuva in a certain area if you can't relate to how you were before. And the one thing I cannot relate to mm. at all about myself before is that I didn't believe in God until I was 16. I mean, me not believing God, I want to cry when I think about it. I'm like, how in the world did <laughs> I not believe in God? Like I talk about God all the time. <laughs> but so it was like a moment of awakening at around age 16 where I was like, actually, I think there might be a God. And it was like the most exciting realization I ever had. I talked about it with everyone I met and I haven't stopped since, since then. And I'm 45 <laughs> Here now. we are talking about God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So around age 17 and a half, I graduated high school. I was at a concert in Las Vegas, which I'm from New York. And I met a boy named Butterfly who, I mean, he's my husband now, I'll just get straight to it. But <laughs> the first thing that we started talking about is belief in God. Do you believe in God? I, do, I believe in God. And so that was like kind of the starting point of our relationship. And then after that, he asked me if I was Jewish because he had already had some experiences in the Maristani Yeshiva where he's from New Jersey. He had a whole story on Yitzhak Kislev where he had a Fabringen and it really changed his life. So he was thinking to himself, I don't know what I'm going to do if she's not Jewish because I think I'm going to marry her. Like he had love at first sight. Like he literally had this revelation in his soul that he was going to marry me the minute he met me. He went home and told his mom, I met the girl I'm going to marry. <laughs> took me like two Aww. years to catch up. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Poor thing. That is sweet. Yeah. No, the beautiful thing about love at first sight is that it is a Jewish concept. Rabbi Ginsburg speaks about it in The Mystery of Marriage. He says there is such a concept. We see it in the Torah. But the hard part about it is that usually it's one side. Of, like usually mm. it's one of the couple who realizes it and then it's the other one who has to go through the more dastatum process of realizing. Keeps the other person grounded. <laughs> yeah, totally. I think that's my role. So fast forward though, we spent about a year spending time together. And he took me to his aunt Devorah's for Shabbos. So Devorah Tabinpur, for anyone who knows her, lives in spot now. She's a very deep, very, very deeply spiritual, God-centered person. And I loved her. I was like, okay, she's my shlucha officially, even though she wasn't an actual official Chabad shlucha. She's Lubavitch and she had a home in Morristown. And I went to her for Shabbos and that was very life-changing. I don't remember the exact conversations we had, but Devorah managed to convey to me that God is in the details in Judaism and the Rebbe is a very holy tzaddik and you need to have a relationship with him. So even though I didn't become firm right away, I walked away with knowing that Yiddishkeit was very deep and that the Rebbe is holy. That didn't actually translate yet into like actual practice, but then I went away to school in California. So then Butterfly started to go by his Hebrew name, Daviona. He has a whole crazy miracle story about how he eventually decided to just go to yeshiva. He went to yeshiva university thinking that it would be like a good way to make his parents happy and get a degree and also be able to study Torah. And he got there and he was like, wait, this is very different than Morristown. Like what happened? Like he ended up opening up a Chabad house in his dorm there with like pictures of the Rebbe everywhere. And like he brought in the rabbis from Morristown to Fabring with the guys who weren't putting tefillin on anymore. You know, he was like, what is happening? He became like an instant shliach there. But anyway, he went there. He was doing his thing. He became full-fledged Lubavitch. And I was still sort of not there yet. And I went off to California to study in a natural medicine school. And it's funny because the first thing I saw when I walked in 
Munzor to this, okay, it's in Garbersville, California, like deep in the mountains, six hours north of San Francisco. There's no Jews there. No Jews actually live there. Maybe they do now, but at that time, for sure, there was no Jews there. So I get to this school. You have to drive an hour up into the mountains of California to get to the school. So first of all, I walk into the mail room and I see a picture of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, a picture of the Rebbe in the recycling bin. And I'm like, wait, the Rebbe's holy. You can't put the Rebbe in a recycling bin. And I took the Rebbe out. Like that was one of the first experiences I had when I got there. When I was like, finally, like Yiddishkeit's not for me. I'm going to go to the mountains of California. He can go do his thing. Like, see ya, you know? Yeah. So the first thing I run into is a picture of the Rebbe. Then... My whole life, I never met anyone who went by their Jewish name. I grew up very secular, you know, like Jews, but like secular Jews, not like all of a sudden I'm in this school and there's all these people going by their Hebrew names because they have like these awakenings, even though they were reformed Jews, but there's an Adina and a Moshe and a Viva. And I'm like, where are you guys coming from? All the- yeah. I'm like running away from my Yiddishkeit and the Rebbe and Adinas and Moshe's and Avivas are like in my face. <laughs> I'm like, no. <laughs> They're like, you want to go to shul and Yom Kippur with us? And I was like, no, I do not want to go to shul and Yom Kippur. I, I ran away from New York to the mountains of California to get away from all you people. Why are you here? <laughs> anyway, and my, you know, butterfly would call me every now and then. You know, like you should light Shabbos candles. And I was like, okay, no one tells me what to do. Like I have to come to this on my own. I don't like to be told what to do. Even though I'm a college teacher and I call Rabbanim all the time now, but I'm asking. Yeah. <laughs> They don't call you to tell you what to do. (laughs) Exactly. So what happened, though, is when I was there, I just thought I was going to find my happiness. And I believed in God at that point, 100%. I just, I don't know, somehow the holiness of the Rebbe didn't, to me, in my conscious mind, translate as you should go in the Rebbe's ways and keep charting mitzvahs. Like somehow, like there was still a blockage. I wasn't finding happiness there. You know, it's like vegan food and the mountains, California, acupuncture. I was learning natural medicine. It was like everything I thought I wanted and I was miserable. So we came home for winter break and I was like, now I'm back at this fish concert because the Grateful Dead were at the concert where I met my husband originally in Las Vegas, that the leader of that band passed away. So everyone who used to go to those concerts was now going to these other concerts. I didn't even really like music as much, but I was there because that's where my friends were. I was home in New York for winter break, but I went to Boston for this concert but it was New Year's Eve and I didn't have a ticket. And the way these concerts work is it was like a scene in the parking lot. It's kind of like the Shook and Arts of Sorrel, but more like hippie-ish. And everybody hangs out in the parking lot. And so I was hanging out with my friends, but they were like still in the same place they were two years ago. Like no one was growing spiritually. And I was really yearning for truth and God. And I thought I would find it in the mountains of California with natural medicine, et cetera. So I'm here. And I feel like everywhere I turn, like, I don't know, like nothing was clicking. I wasn't finding God the way I wanted to. So I'm sitting on this bench, warming my feet because everyone went into the concert and I didn't have a ticket. And this man comes up to me and he starts talking to me about his community, how they are like God-centered and they had a very hippie kind of a look to them and they talked about God. And I was like, all right, that's it. I'm not finding my happiness there in California. I'm going to go join this community. (laughs) It turned out it was a Christian cult. My poor mother. So okay. I, I call him. Yes. So my mom's so happy because I'm You're like, finally, like, I was like in this school in California getting a degree in natural medicine. She was thrilled. All of a sudden I call her. I'm like, yeah, I'm not going back there. You can have them send my stuff. I'm joining this community. And it was actually in Vermont. It's all a long story. Anyway, I went to this community in Vermont and I called my mom. And so I was actually supposed to meet Daviona. He knew I was going to be home for winter break. He asked his be if he could come meet up with me at a museum to like influence me in the ways of Yiddishkeit. And I didn't show up because I was in a Christian cult. Mm. So my mom's like losing her mind. Everybody's freaking out. But basically what ended up happening, I used to have a really hard time telling my story because I was like, I sound so crazy. It's like, I didn't know. And then all of a sudden I knew. But when I was in this Christian cult, one of the days that I was there, they started talking about the creation of Adam and Chava. Mm. I'm doing like a Bible class or whatever. And I had this moment of intense awakening where I was like, that's true. I know that that happened. Like it's like a moment. I was a Susa de la Ela. I felt it. I knew it. I knew it was true. And then I was overcome with a feeling of dread because I was like, uh oh, does that mean that I'm supposed to be here? Or does that mean I'm supposed to be an Orthodox Jew? And it all came crashing in at once. And I was freaking out because I didn't know. 
So first of all, when I used to tell this part of the story, I was like, I can't tell people this. And it really makes me sound crazy. But it's another thing where I realized, well, actually, it's, this is what it says in Chassidus. It actually says in Chassidus that a Jew could do tons of different averas and not realize and live in total darkness and have no clue. But the second that they try to do one of the three main averas that it could cut off your soul from God, the part of the soul that doesn't stay concealed just mm. like comes crashing in and says, hello, you're oh a Jew, goodness. you know? And that's why people say Shema in situations like this, right? So I just knew. I was like, I just know this is true. I know Torah is true. And now I don't know if I should be here or there. And then at that moment, Zabiona calls me. And he starts telling me Hasidus about, like, they changed my name. They gave me a Hebrew name in this cult. They gave me the name Devorah. Devorah is Devorah Tavampor, is the, my shlucha, like the one Jewish woman that I really knew. Be connected with, right. Her name was Devorah. So the name means Devorah. Anyway, so he calls me and he's like, they changed your name, the name of your essence of your soul. You can't be there. And he was like begging me to go to Mahon Chana. He's like, let us come get you. We'll bring you to Mahon Chana. If you don't like it there, we'll bring you back. And I kept saying, it has to come from me. It has to come from me. I don't know what God wants. I know that Torah is true, but I just don't know if it's like what they're telling me here is true, that it's no longer applicable or if it's, it is and I need to, you know, be learning in Mahon Chana. Like, I don't know. And I went upstairs to my room and I cried my heart out to God. Every time I tell it, I start to get teary because I just remember sitting there on the floor just being like, please, 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 please show me the truth. I don't care what it looks like. I just want to do what you want. I don't know what you want. Like, I just don't know. I don't know if I'm meant to mm. be here or if I'm meant to be there. And I just want to serve you. Mm. So that night I went to sleep and I'm like, okay, well, I guess God wants me here because I'm still here. And that morning at five o'clock in the morning, Devorah Simcha Levenberg, the one who came in for the bris, and my husband Zviona show up at the cult to come get me. Wow. Yeah. And it's a whole story about how like I just- He was determined, your husband. Well, he, it was crazy actually because it was really Devora who said to him, because when he was on the phone with me and I started crying on the phone with him, like, I don't know, it has to come from me. Devora was like, she's crying. That means she's open. We have to go now. And he was like, I'm studying in yeshiva. She was my girlfriend. She's not from, she's in a Christian cult. I don't know if I should go get her. So he actually goes to Morristown Rabbi, Rabbi Greenberg, and he was like, what should I do? And he was like, um, this is a little out of my jurisdiction. Should you like go <laughs> rescue this Jewish girl from a cult? Like Your ex-girlfriend, right. Yeah. So he was like, why don't you write a letter to the Rebbe and put it in the Igros and see what you got? And he got a letter from the Rebbe. He opens up the Igros Kaidash to a letter saying, even if you have to pause your Torah study to go see a Jew, and even if you have to travel far distances you should go. So wow. I was like, okay, I think you have a clear answer. So there's so many miracle stories along the way. It's for another time, but yeah, there were a lot of signs from heaven on their way there and when they got there. And But eventually I just drove away with them. I was like, okay, just take me to Crown Heights. <laughs> and in, in, mm. like literally the next day I was in Crown Heights. So I guess that shows you the power of sincere prayer. Oh. You know what I'm the most struck by is the fact that you are someone who began with this incredible passion for the fact that a Jew's life is built on miracles. And then I'm seeing this like really incredible parallel, which is that your eyes are open to it. And it's so clear that your life is built on miracles. That yeah. butterfly, Devanya, is now your husband. You have eight Jewish children with him and you live in Manhattan and you're a there. And every single piece of your life is built on a miracle. And yeah. So I'm like, what came first? I think you do have a mission to share this reality with other people. And I'm so grateful that you're sharing it with us. Just the fact that a Jew's life is built on miracles. We have to be open to it. When you're open to it, you see it. When you see it, more of it happens. Hashem, yes. you know, when you're receptive to it, you get to experience more miracles. Yeah. The Rebbe Maharash actually says that the more that you openly trust in Hashem, which is basically trusting that Hashem is going to make things work out for you and make miracles for you, that is Batachan. So the more Batachan you have, the more Hashem openly shows himself to you. Oh, and you were saying that you and your husband are so immersed in the concept of Simcha. And I see this joy that you have, like you have a joyful energy. And I don't think that's a mistake when you see Hashem's hand in your life so clearly and when you are open to it, that gives you a sense of joy and peace. So what would be your advice to other people on cultivating that openness to the miraculous in our lives? Well, first of all, learning Hasidus, because Hasidus sensitizes us to the truth, to our soul, and also is cautious to the Rebbe, reading Rebbe's stories, stories of Siddiquim. This also just opens us up. And then really just 
not allowing the inner cynicism, the, the yeah. inner amalek, knowing that if that voice comes and says, ah, it's not really a miracle, just know that's the Yitzhahara. It is a miracle. Hashem is in your life. He is speaking to you. So if there's any part of your conscious self is telling you it's not true, just like we have to recognize the Yitzhahara in other areas of our life, right? Anyone who works on themselves knows that the Yitzhahara is very tricky and it comes in all sorts of ways and gets us to you know, down or to think things that aren't real, we have to know that any voice inside of us that tells us that it's not real, that Hashem's not present, that Hashem's not making miracles, that is the Yitzhahara. That's Amalek. And it's our job to push that away with two hands. Yeah. There's nothing that prevents us more from that joy and that experience of just experiencing Hashem than that cynicism and the skepticism that creeps into your bones in this world where you're just like, eh, you know, like you just imagine it's brilliant. Yeah. Thank you. That is brilliant. And I think it can be a life-changing concept if we can truly be open to the miracles that our life is built on. Yes. And Hashem, please God, will make the ultimate miracle of the Gula Shlema that each and every one of us will have redemption in all areas of our life. We'll really, really, really see Hashem. Amen. Thank you for sharing your miracles. Thank you for having me. And thank you for not just your miracles, but your spirit. I feel like it's not just the story. It's the story, but it's the spirit. It's the belief. It's the trust. It's the openness and the joy that you're experiencing in your life. That to me is so moving. So thank you. Thank you. Lichaberet nishmati Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, I want to invite you to leave a rating or a review. It helps other people find the podcast. And you know, we're all about getting Chassidus into every corner of the world. I also want to invite you, if you really loved it, to share it with a friend who you think might love it too. If you would like to sponsor an episode, you can reach out to us at humanandholy at gmail.com. To give to Human and Holy in any amount, visit humanandholy.com slash sponsor. You can follow us on Instagram at humanandholy, and you can stay up to date with everything we do by signing up for our newsletter on humanandholy.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day.